Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 15th of January. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Before we get into what will, again, we're sorry, surprise, be a very U.S.-centered pod, Jeremy, how are, how are things in Berlin? Oh, well, Berlin uh, is is fairly calm compared with Washington at the moment. Politically, we're all looking ahead to tomorrow, as we record this, when the Christian Democratic Union, Angela Merkel's party, is electing a new leader who may well become their candidate for chancellor at the elections in September this year. That would make them the front runner to succeed Merkel as German chancellor. It's three white Catholic male lawyers, so a change a change from Merkel, but uh, with, with, with some, some differences of approach as to where they want to take Germany next. You can read more about that on, on the New Statesman website, but I'll be paying attention to that. And we're hoping to discuss the result with our guests on the podcast next week. Can I first ask you which of the white male Catholic lawyers you think it will be? It's actually very close. The, the three of them are Friedrich Merz, who's the, the candidate of the right, in some ways the anti-Merkel candidate, who probably has the edge with the party grassroots, who are, you'll be astonished to hear, mostly male and white and old. Then there's Armin Laschet, who's a kind of continuity candidate. And then there's Norbert Röttgen, who was a, seen as a long shot, but has had a good campaign and is pledging more of a modernizing agenda. Of the three, Merz will almost certainly go through to the second round against one of the other two. And the question is whether the one of Laschet or Rutgen, the two more moderate candidates that goes through to the final round with Merz, ends up inheriting the other's votes and, and ending up on top. It's very finely balanced. I won't, Having made an array of predictions in last week's episode, I'm not going to make a prediction on this one. Sorry. Mm, fair enough. Tell me, how are things in Washington? Has the, has the dust settled, so to speak? I was thinking about this before we hit record, because every week on this podcast, I'm like, things aren't great in Washington. But things are actually not great in Washington this week. Or I should say that things aren't great in D.C. this week, as in the city where we live, because the capital is completely militarized in preparation. Well, just to prevent future violence, but also in preparation for the inauguration next week. Airbnb has canceled reservations in D.C. We're really feel like we're, we're all hunkering down. I, I, you know, I have friends who are texting, make sure you get your groceries this week so that if you need to stay inside all next week, you're you're set. It's uh, a tense situation here in D.C. much of the military presence on the streets or is it confined to the capital? So in my neighborhood, 
you don't really because it's it's far enough away. But if you go, the thing about the city is that it, it's a small city. It's wild to think about, you know, here there's people in, in their apartment buildings and playing with their kids and, you know, going to their jobs. And then you just go a little bit and there's fences up and National Guard members sleeping on the Capitol floor to try to protect members of Congress. The other thing that's happening in not in DC, but in Washington is the difference being that people say like Washington is where the government is and DC is where people live. So I'm going to be try to be better about making the distinction myself. But they put up metal detectors in the Capitol building this week, obviously, because of what happened last week. And several Republican members have distinguished themselves by just melting down about it. You know, they've been rushing through. They've not been letting the guards check them. They're like, this is unacceptable. We shouldn't have to put up with this, which is interesting because here in the United States, little kids have to go through metal detectors to get into their schools. And also there is this horrible, violent action a week before these people are trying to help you and protect you and keep you safe. And yet the same individuals who speak about the importance of following, you know, police order and law and order are, are doing this. It's a very tense time here in the city. Okay. We're going to come on to that in our main discussion with our guest in a moment. Um, briefly, let's do our moments of the week. Mine, I think, has to be the announcement by NASA yesterday, Thursday, as we record this, that 2020 was the hottest year on record. Very narrowly, it was hotter than 2016 by a fraction of a percent, although it said that temperatures in 2016 were particularly high because of El Nino that year. So in many ways, 2020 is clearly the hottest year on record, if you put that aside. Um, significant for very obvious reasons, but also politically because it forms the backdrop to the COP26 climate summit this November. And one hopes that the urgency of the issue underlined by that announcement will will feed through into results uh, at the summit. Emily, I think I know what your moment of the week is going to be. So I'm going to just take this moment to ask you, first of all, to introduce our guest, as she will have a lot to say about it too, and then suggest that you start us off with a bit of an overview about where things are in American politics. Of course. We have a return guest today. I think other than Ido, she's our first return guest to the pod and we couldn't have a better return guest. We're very, very excited that here to help us unpack the end of the world, we have our New Statesman's very own Sarah Manavis. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thanks for having me back. I'm honored to be your first repeat guest. So before we get into it, for those of you who have not been following uh, what happened here in the States this week, President Donald Trump managed to get himself impeached for a second time in four years, making himself the only president in U.S. history to be impeached twice. Half of the impeachments to happen in this country have happened to him. So the House of Representatives voted. It was a bipartisan effort, but in fairness, only 10 Republicans joined the Democrats. And we could talk more about why that is as we get into it. The articles of impeachment will now go to the Senate, but Senate, now Majority Leader, soon to be Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, has said that he will not bring back the Senate to start the trial now. They're going to wait until January 19th, which means that the impeachment trial will take up Biden's first days and maybe weeks in in office. Sarah, (laughs) uh, let me start with this. What did you make of the fact that there were only 10 Republicans who joined with the Democrats? Were you, because I was kind of of two minds on this. On the one hand, if somebody inciting an angry mob to attack your place of work is not enough to get you to impeach that person, then then what is? But on the other hand, for political reasons, I get why they didn't why they didn't want to do this to themselves, right? I mean, Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney's daughter, who's obviously a Republican establishment figure, she supported impeachment, and now Republicans in Congress are calling for her to step down from her leadership role. What was your your take? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same place you are. I mean, it's everything about the last, what is it, like week to 10 days has just been my brain being split in two and trying to decide Mm -hmm. which side of that brain is actually right or where my instincts are correct and where they aren't. But yeah, I think so much of what we've seen from Republicans in the last 10 days has been in many ways, and I don't mean to be overly cynical about this, but political opportunism that a lot of them, yeah, I think it's absolutely right that you should be impeaching a president who was egging on a violent mob that ended up leading to the deaths of four people. I think it's absolutely right to impeach that president. I'm also in the mind of thinking this has been a long time coming and maybe not just as bad, but many incredibly bad things have happened because of this president since. And it is now politically safe to do what a lot of these Republicans are doing, which is finally standing up to Trump. And so, yeah, it's, I, can't, I can't really look at anything any Republican is doing at the moment and think you're doing the right thing or you're doing this in good faith because I just don't understand how, you know, the five million bad things Trump has done in the last four years weren't also a breaking point for you and why it has to get this bad before you actually do something about it. To what can we actually trace this back? If you were either of you writing a book about all of this, where would you where would you start the prehistory? Is this something that goes back to the, I don't know, the dawn of the Trump campaign in 2015-16? Or does it go back to the Tea Party movement? Or do we have to go a lot further back? Where, where does this story start? I think it is a two-pronged history. And one is, I think what Emily will probably be better at explaining, which is where the Republican movement and the right, where the right in the United States has come from. But also for me, the internet culture being my sort of area of expertise, you can, I mean, I remember being in high school 10 years ago and seeing what boys in my class were writing on 4chan and thinking like, huh, it's weird that people can just write that and there are no repercussions online. And for me, I think it starts as far back as that. Well, I have a I have a question for you about that part of it right after I give my answer, which is that I think I think there are many parts at which you could start the story. You could start it at, at Reconstruction. You know, you could start it at the Second Clan. You could start it at Ronald Reagan's presidency and how the Republican Party has evolved from there. But if I were writing this, I might have the prologue be about you know the Republican Party since since Reagan. But the book would be about it would start with everything Trump has said as a working adult which I think I've said this on, I know I've said this on the podcast before, but the thing that people say that Trump doesn't have an ideology, but he does. It's, it's the ideology of grievance and the idea, the idea that, that things are unfair to him, despite the fact that he is a, grew up the son of a a wealthy white man. And I think that these politics of grievance, he's played on extremely effectively. It got him to be president, but that's, but I think that that is fundamentally what this is, right? It's, it's the idea that even with, gerrymandering and the electoral college and all of his conspiracy theories and a pandemic and voting that he tried to sabotage by not properly funding mail-in voting like by his own admission despite all of that he still lost and that's unfair you know what i mean like it's uh, and and therefore people are being unfair to the person who set it up to make it harder for people to vote and so therefore atlanta and detroit and philadelphia and these majority or these heavily Black cities, there must have been fraud, right? I, I just don't think that you can remove the element of white grievance from any of this. I think that that, like, to me, that's fundamentally what Stop the Steal is about. It's saying that these votes matter and these other votes should be thrown out. Yeah, I mean, I think white grievance is like actually 
what joins together all of the different elements that have led us to this point. Um, I mean, that I mean, that is how what you would call like alt-right ideology. And I know that alt-right can be a watered-down term, but I actually think it's the most useful one to convey the kind of groups that we're talking about here. When it comes to particularly what we've seen since, you know, the Stop the Steal began, and, and in particular, obviously, what's happened in the last 10 days since the storming of the US Capitol. But I think that's it, is that there's an idea that there is that there is some sort of white marginalization, which is really in the scale that they're talking about, does not exist, but they're able to make it so granular that it's so individual. And the way that Trump does, and it's what makes Trump such an effective speaker for them, is because the people that believe in these ideologies, they want it to be very, very individual and about them. And as you say, Emily, like very well, is that that's exactly what Trump has always been able to do. And yeah, and so for me, on my side of things, it does go back to to the beginning of I mean, really the beginning of sort of the unfiltered mainstream internet. And obviously we don't necessarily think of sites like 4chan as mainstream, but for these groups, they really are. And that's where I begin. And that's where you start to see that they've always been threatening violence. It is a group that has always been identified as being, you know, racist, dangerous, and always encouraging, I mean, literally murder and death pretty regularly as a movement. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you a bit about the movement because I think some of what some of what we've been talking about, you know, white grievance, and and I think you could make that same. I don't want to sound too partisan here, but you could make that charge for a lot of establishment Republican politicians and the policies that they have pushed, and and some Democrats, in fairness. But what's different is that I th- I think you're right. With this moment, we kind of have a perfect storm of a history of of American history and those policies and the internet. And Trump has been really good at at using both. When we talk about the people who get behind that, right, who see, yes, he's bringing this together and he's bringing together, you know, politics and history and internet conspiracy. And I'm on board. I don't even think of it as a conspiracy. I am all in. In the week since the storming of the Capitol building, we've seen people pick out individuals who were found at the Capitol and, and, and kind of using it to to prove their priors. So there were articles that were extremely classist and saying, oh, they're going to go eat their McDonald's. And, you know, I think Anderson Cooper said, oh, they're going to go to Olive Garden. But I think just just, just for, non, for non-American listeners, can you explain the cultural significance of Anderson Cooper and Olive Garden? Oh, sure. <laughs> Anderson Cooper is a CNN talking head. And Olive Garden is a family-friendly restaurant that I think is associated with the middle class. Thank you for that cultural glossary. You may you make it. Yeah, of course. It's something that I always struggle with, with Americans and British people in talking about class is middle class does not mean what middle class yep. means in the UK. <laughs> it does not mean that sort of like semi-posh thing. It means sort of more... It's more working class, right? Yeah. And it has like a connotation. I mean, and Emily, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was growing up, it had a connotation of being kind of tacky. I think that's what, what Anderson Cooper was trying to jibe about with all of Garden. Yes, I would agree. Anderson Cooper, if you are listening to this podcast and insulted by that description, you shouldn't have said it in the first place. Anyway, but then we also saw, you know, a woman who used her private plane to fly to the Capitol, Olympic swimmer, former Olympic swimmer, Cleet Keller was found at the Capitol. So you have all of these different kinds of people. Sarah, what does that tell us about to whom this movement is attractive? Well, I think that's it. I think that you've essentially hit what I think really distracts people from what this movement actually is and that it's not like backwater hicks, essentially. It's mm-hmm. like, and not that that's like how you should be describing really any sort of demographic in the United States, but that's right. I think what the media for a very long time and particularly 
after the 2016 election. I don't mean Trump. I mean, like when they were breaking down who voted for Trump, they they liked to hit home that it was the sort of Rust Belt. And I like to have this grievance as a Rust Belt native. They were sort of trying to paint it as that, is that these dumb hicks from the country who don't really know what they're talking about, they're the ones who are behind Trump. They're the ones who are behind this movement, which is just fundamentally at least when it comes to who is spending a lot of their time online and who is organizing online for Trump, that is just not what the demographics are. And it, it tends to be that it's not any particular demographic other than being white. When it comes to like, if you were to write it down on a sheet, everything else is more about, again, to come back to that point that you as a white person feel that you have been done wrong by what you believe to be minorities in the United States. And the way Trump comes into that is because Trump is not necessarily special in that, you know, he's like this cartoon rich man um, with like his beautiful golden hair and all of his money and his gold towers. But he was very, very good at painting a reality that did not exist. And he used the internet to amplify that beyond the realm that any other person would really be able to other than Donald Trump. And that's where he is unique. He was good at Twitter, particularly. He knew how to be funny. He knew how to be relatable. And he knew how to in sort of plain language, in almost like memeable language, make these messages really fly. And through that, you paint this alternate universe in which white people are going to become a minority somehow, which is not the case, and how you can paint anybody who is not a white person as, as the real problem and paint white people, such as the Democrats, who support those minorities, or even, I mean, that's obviously up in the air, but from your perception, that's who supports these minorities, that they are the ones that are the problem because they are using their white power in order to take white people down, essentially. And, and, that, and that is where the demographics are not about rich or poor or about where you're from in the United States. It's about are you white and do you buy into this idea, which is really playing fundamentally on your internalized racism. It's amazing how often that aspect of populist politics has been written off in, in the commentary. Two facts that I, I always come back to are that two thirds of Trump's voters in 2016 earned more than $50,000 a year. And relatedly in the UK, I think just under two thirds of Brexit voters were in social classes A, B or C1. So the, the kind of the middle class, white, comfortably off populist voter or supporter is a massive part of the story that doesn't enough talk about it. Anyway, on, on that point, Sarah, and also Emily, where do you see the relationship now between the sort of internet subcultures that have that have, that have obviously played a role, you know, in the Trump phenomenon and in driving people towards these this sort of conspiracist insurgency? What's the relationship now between those subcultures and the Republican Party at large? I mean, there was that, I think we touched on it in last week's episode, there was polling immediately after the storming of the Capitol that suggested that 45% of Republican voters supported the move. Is the Republican Party now becoming the sort of the political wing of 4chan or parlor or whatever? Or is there, is there a sort of a looming civil war, in this case, metaphorically, between the, those different parts of the Republican camp? For me, I've spent so much of my time in the last two and a half years saying that this is going to turn violent. Donald Trump is a figurehead. This movement is much bigger than Donald Trump. And it, even if we take down Donald Trump, whatever that means, this movement is going to thrive and it's going to spread in a variety of directions. And at many points when writing that, I felt like I was being melodramatic and now I no longer feel that way. I don't think that it has ever really been about Donald Trump for at least the internet subcultures. Donald Trump was almost like a kind of like a risible figure 
for a lot of the sort of alt-right groups that are now some of his like biggest proponents. He was, I mean, in the same way we all kind of view Donald Trump, like it's very easy because he is kind of funny and he has strange mannerisms and he looks odd. It's very easy to sort of underestimate his power and that sort of insidiousness that lies within him. And, and what these groups were able to do was sort of notice that, capitalize on it and merely use him as like a pathway rather than him actually being the cause that they were getting behind. And so I think for the same reason, there is no allegiance, at least in these subcultures, to the Republican Party as a whole. And many of them, I mean, actually, like a really interesting phenomenon in, again, what you would call the alt-right, are how many of them were sort of involved in like the Occupy Wall Street movement in the late noughties, and how many of them identified as Democrats as recently as 10 years ago, and have now sort of switched to being hardcore Republicans. But it's because they aren't actually, they have no allegiance to a party. They have an allegiance to an ideology, which is that they've been hard done by. And how do they correct that imbalance? And so I think what you'll start to see, these internet subcultures funnel their attention behind very, very specific political candidates. And increasingly, I think those will not be Republican candidates, they will be independent candidates, which may mean that the movement dies because those independent candidates aren't able to get that sort of like mainstream grassroots support that Trump was able to do because he was running under the Republican banner. But it also might mean that you do begin to see this weird fracturing, at least on a smaller scale with American politics, where the independent candidates are getting a little bit more attention, maybe in smaller seats and in smaller elections, like state senates are able to sort of make a mark. And that's where I think you'll start to see a difference. But there's no allegiance to the Republican Party within these groups. And in many ways, like it never mattered to them whether Trump would be a Republican. It was just about Trump being a very, very good megaphone. I think that the Republican Party now has a real problem because Trump ran as a Republican and because Trump wannabes are running as Republicans, at least right now, it's like it's coming from within the House. You know, the fact that during the impeachment, Macettes of Florida got up and spoke about the Biden crime family and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who adheres to QAnon, but now does not want to be referred to as a QAnon adherent. The fact that she got up with a mask that said censored while speaking on live television to talk about how it's the Democrats who should be removed. They're in Congress. You know, they're Republicans in Congress and they're calling for Liz Cheney's removal. And and then even Republicans who I, I think you're going to see some try to to continue to play both sides of this. For example, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina, who after the storming of the Capitol said, I've had enough, count me out, then got on a plane with Trump and went on Fox News and said, well, if you want the violence to stop, stop the impeachment, which is a real chicken and the egg, Lindsay, gotta say. I think that they thought that they could control Trump and get something out of this. And you know what? In all fairness, it worked out great for if you you don't care about the hundreds of thousands of people dead from COVID and the immigration policies and the et cetera. It worked out great. They got their tax cuts. They got three Supreme Court justices. They have a bunch more justices or judges throughout the federal system. But unfortunately, you can't separate that from the kind of rhetoric and violence and open hatred of others that you have now led into your party. And I I think if Mitch McConnell still thinks he's in charge of this party, I disagree. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. 
I'd be good to come on to the, the inauguration and what's going to happen next. But just before we do so, what do we think about, first of all, the decisions by YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and so forth to variously suspend and ban Trump, as well as, I believe, Parler, the alternative social media of choice of the nativist right has been taken offline. First of all, is that a one-off caused by the extreme circumstances of the past days? Or is that something we can come to expect more of and relatedly do you see i mean obviously parlor has had parlor seems to have played an important role in all of this there seems to be a kind of emergence of a of a new thrusting and widely used alternative or alt-right online ecosystem does that then get turbocharged by trump's expulsion and the ascendancy of a democratic president it's it's objectively good what has happened that They've removed Trump and Twitter in particular, removing a lot of QAnon influencers. I mean, in all parts of the world, really. I mean, it's predominantly in the US, but you've actually seen some pretty major, you know, like sort of six figure follower accounts, accounts that are big QAnon supporters have been gone from the UK on Twitter in this sort of like, quote unquote, purge that they've been doing. That's good. But it really, it is so frustrating to me to see this happening. And I can't remember who wrote it, but a journalist wrote about how journalists like me and you know hundreds of others who have been reporting on this stuff for the last few years have been gaslit by tech companies in the way we actually have all have been in saying that no the thing where you you know with youtube saying to people no our algorithm does not push you more and more extreme content no people are not being radicalized on our platforms like no this is not a problem with us it's actually a problem with xyz in the real world and it's just it's just fundamentally not true and we're seeing that in like the most unequivocal way possible and so what really we should be taking away from these bans is that this should have happened years ago and how much violence could have been stopped and how much how much radicalization could have been stopped had this happened i mean really predating a trump presidency it should have been stopping in 2014 2015 even before that to your last point it's heartbreaking to think about how many people have been lost to this you know and yeah. and qanon being such an all-encompassing conspiracy it's hard for people to help their family members and friends find their way back. The only other thing I would say is that in response to Trump getting kicked off Twitter, from QAnon accounts getting kicked off Twitter, several prominent people, some of them US senators, got very upset about cancel culture and their freedom of speech being attacked. And I would just remind listeners of this podcast, should they come across that argument, that freedom of speech in the United States protects your right to criticize the government. It does not entitle you to an account on a private platform where you can incite violence. It does not, Senator Hawley of Missouri, guarantee you a Simon Schuster book deal. His was canceled. It does It does not entitle you to op-ed space. It does not entitle you to TV time. None of that is freedom of speech. If in the week following an insurrection, you are upset about cancel culture. I mean, we, yes, we should absolutely have a conversation about our tech overlords and about how they're regulating this. And as Sarah says, many journalists have been trying for a long time to have that conversation. But to say that the real threat here is Trump not being on Twitter. Personally, not to get too opinionated, but I just think it's the epitome of a bad faith argument. I think like one of the greatest successes of this movement online is in how how normalized it is made. What are fundamentally like very violent and racist, xenophobic ideologies. And, And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean that has become a mainstream ideology and that the Overton window has shifted, which of course it has. And many people point that out, you know, years and years and years ago. But I think from my perspective, what they've been successful in is making people think that this 
is what publishers, like if we were watching CNN in 2002, these people, like these ideologies should have been, if you were having like a Tucker Carlson crossfire episode, that would be what the other side is. And of course, like this thing that people do where they go like, oh, pre-2016, everything was wonderful and everything was fine. Like that is obviously not correct. These ideologies tap into what was a pre-existing, you know, fundamentally racist, white supremacist sympathy that was already like existing in the United States. However, what is so hard for people to swallow when it comes to the free speech element now is because we now think, because people have been allowed to do so for so long, that having that right taken away is a right being taken away rather than a right that should have never existed. And I think that's the greatest success. And it's how we can get distracted and bogged down in these, as you say, Emily, in many cases, bad faith arguments. And I think the conversation should be shifted to why has big tech been allowed to let these ideologies thrive on their platforms? Why has big tech been able to decide that they can speak and that anyone can speak? And sort of what is the public sphere now and what do people have a right to online? And those are the much harder questions that we need to be approaching, but it's easier and it's more beneficial for tech companies for us to spend all of our focus on saying, should people be allowed to say violent racist things online as much as they please and literally have it lead to real world violence? So just a note to the listeners, Sarah wrote a very good article about this for the New Statesman website uh, earlier this week. Uh, and why the tech giants haven't done more to pull the plug on extremism. And we'll put that on the webpage for this episode of World Review. So look out for that. I think that brings us to a question of what what happens next. What are you both expecting from the inauguration? There's obviously an enormous security presence in Washington, all sorts of accounts from the FBI and others about plans to by extremists to converge on on the Capitol. What do we think is going to happen? And also, Irrespective, pretty much, of what happens in the in the next week, how much does all of this weigh down a subsequent Biden presidency? You know, the the, the incoming president has got a huge number of pressing priorities to deal with in his first days in office. As you mentioned, Emily, the, the Trump impeachment's going to roll on into the first weeks of a Biden presidency. So thoughts on the inauguration and, and how much this makes things difficult for the incoming administration? I just have two quick points. The first is that Biden was planning on taking an Amtrak train to Washington, D.C. For those who don't know, Biden's whole, one of his marks, his like shticks is that he loves trains. He used to take them to the Senate every day. So he was going to Amtrak down. That's our train system was going to Amtrak down to, to Washington. That has been canceled um, because of the security risk, which I, I only bring up to say that I think it's going to be, I I don't know, and don't want to predict what kind of violence we're going to see in the next week. But I I would not be surprised to see some either in DC or in any of the other capitals of, of the 50 states. The other thing I would say is that it's kind of poetic, in a cruel, cruel way, that the first weeks of the Biden administration are going are still going to be about Trump. You know, it's like he lost the election, but we're still we're still dealing with the ramifications, explicitly dealing with the ramifications of his of his choices. Yeah, I think we'll see how the Senate manages this. I think that it's a narrowly controlled Democratic Senate will make a difference because perhaps they can figure out some way to split their time between the impeachment trial and trying to get Biden's nominees through. But I would also just say that, you know, that Biden also yesterday released a $1.9 trillion relief bill for COVID because we also have that. There's there's thousands of people dying every day. We are way behind on um, vaccine rollout and distribution. But despite all that, I, I do think that it's, I understand the temptation to say Trump is done. Let's just focus on what's next. But I, I tend to agree with those people who say 
that there is no is no moving forward if we do not grapple with what we just went through. And that includes this impeachment trial. Yeah, on the inauguration, I'm kind of in the same mind where I, you don't want to predict what's going to happen. And I think there obviously is going to be a much more sort of scrutiny from law enforcement of what they probably perceive to be empty threats when it came to what happened on Capitol Hill. But, and at first I was like, oh, that probably means that we're not going to really see anything. However, the one thing that the people, especially the people that are actually willing to like get on a plane and go to DC and actually protest and do these kinds of things and actually take their time and lives outside of just things they post online and actually commit to it. The one thing that historically those groups have thrived on is not necessarily like election wins or seeing more people like buy into their ideology, but it's attention. You don't really get much more attention than you did last week, other than say at a presidential inauguration. And so my concern is that after getting global headlines and dominating news cycles everywhere, really for 10 days, they're just going to want to up the ante. And I think it, in many ways, this sort of like vicious cycle of this movement is that the more that happens, the more they want. And it's just sort of never ending. So I, I am concerned that there's going to be a similar movement and maybe even a bigger one than we saw last week. Movement is obviously a very generous term to the rioting that we saw. But yeah, I think we're going to see something like that probably at the inauguration. And but if we're going to be slightly more optimistic, I do think not having Trump there does decentralize the movement. I think Trump was very useful to them as an emblem. And without having that, they have to disperse. And yeah, I was going to say like Marjorie Taylor Greene is a great example, the like QAnon sympathetic congresswoman. They have to kind of then put their stock in much smaller characters. And so, yeah, I think that we might see almost not a last hurrah, but at least a sort of last hurrah for the time being. But that doesn't mean that this movement is dying or that it's going anywhere, but just that it doesn't have that huge name sitting in the Oval Office. We touched on this briefly last week with reference to the use of the term coup, but I think it's it's such an important point in all of this. I think it would be good to, to, to develop it further. And we received several good questions. I think we've touched on the answers to some of them, but this one stood out. Do you think it matters whether we call the recent events on Capitol Hill terrorism, insurrection, rebellion, etc.? Does the language matter? Why or why not? Who wants to have a stab at that? I mean, I think language does matter. I do think it's very difficult, as I said, with this ideology, this movement, is that they, they don't mind being called whatever you want to call them. And they, they probably will like relish being called rioters or insurrectionists, because there is almost a sort of edginess to it that they really thrive on. However, where the language is important and where the language can actually help change people's minds is how the wider public sees it. And again, as I was saying before, like part of what has been so successful about the alt-right is that it is so normalized to have these beliefs. But the more that we show that this is actually not okay and that what they are doing, as you say, like 45% of Republicans think that the storming of the Capitol was like absolutely fine. But the, the more we can say that this is not normal, that this is actually very bad and harmful, I mean, as human beings, as a democracy, whatever you want to say it's harmful for, it's harmful for pretty much anything. I think that's where the language is really important. And the more public opinion pushes against that, the more that this movement shrinks into just being online rhetoric. And then if you have the push from tech companies to sort of limit that online rhetoric, this movement becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's where I think the language matters. I don't think it will actually matter to those who are thinking about, you know, literally getting spears and going to the inauguration or going to Capitol Hill, but it'll help swift, 
or switch public opinion in that direction. And and to be fair, at, the, at this point in time, that's actually probably where you can get the most wins than actually trying to change the minds of already radicalized people. I would highlight two pieces of language in particular. The first is that I have seen in some places the people who attack the Capitol building be referred to as protesters. I strongly disagree with this. You have a right in this country to protest. And even if I disagree with your cause, I support that right. Storming the Capitol in order to overthrow an election is not a protest. And it is completely disingenuous to compare. We've seen some say, well, I was against the violent Black Lives Matter protest in the summer and I'm against this violence too. No, stop it. That was a protest in which, yes, in in which there were some across the country violent incidents. That was a protest in, in support of Black life. This was a violent mob storming our seat of government to stop the steal. Like we are not equating those two. The second term that I would draw our attention to is terrorism. And I can see both sides of this argument. On the one hand, there are people who say that these are domestic terrorists, that this is actually the terror threat in our country, and they should be labeled as such. And I, I don't disagree, right? I think I, for years now, we've seen data that says that far-right white supremacist violence is the great extremist threat to this country. On the other hand, I can also sympathize with those who say, by calling them terrorists, what we are doing is giving license to the government to sort of double down on the police state and to expand terror laws. And that will not end up hurting these folks. That will end up further policing the marginalized and and black and brown people and Muslim Americans and, and so on and so forth. And while I don't know that the U.S. government needs like a green light, you know, uh, to to do that, I, I have been personally worried by some who say, well, we need a bill to expand, who, who have called for more money to be spent against terrorism. The, the issue in this particular case was not money. The Capitol Police, police departments, the U.S. military, these are well-funded <laughs> institutions, right? There were many things that went wrong on January 6th, but I, I can see where those who say, no, don't let that be the lesson from this. Don't let, don't call it domestic terrorism so as to not push a police state. I I don't know that I agree with them, but I can appreciate from where they're coming. The point about equating the protests at the Capitol with either kind of pro-justice movements like Black Lives Matter or anti-police state movements elsewhere in in time and, and space is interesting as we had in Berlin a somewhat similar incident last summer in August when anti-lockdown protesters stormed the steps of the Reichstag building where the the German Bundestag sits. Unlike the capital protesters or rioters, they didn't manage to get inside. But notable was that they chanted, as they did so, Wir sind das Volk, or We Are the People, which is a a slogan associated with the pro-democracy protests in East Germany in uh, 1989. And it was a very, obviously, very conscious attempt to appropriate the the pro-democracy, pro-freedom aura of that movement for their own frankly, deluded cause. It's something to watch out for because there is that you do have these, this rich heritage of protest for democracy and justice on which people like this can draw and they can invoke some of the same, you know, the same language, but also the same, sort of the same visual imagery. It can be deceptive and I think it should be resisted as well. You know, this is not the same thing. So with that, why don't we all go through our moments of next week? Emily, why don't you start us off? Well, I don't know what Sarah's is going to be, but I will, as the co-host, uh, leave the inauguration for our guest to say and say that I will be looking at Biden's speech. I think I have I have been struck by how like Biden is not a great public speaker. I think you can look at many, many years of Biden's speeches and, and come to that same conclusion. But he has been doing a 
very solid job in in delivering speeches that both communicate empathy and inform the the American public about what is going on. It's been a real contrast to what we've seen, which again, of course, was like the whole that was the whole promise of Joe Biden. So I will be watching closely to see both the delivery and the content of the speech. Four years ago, we had Trump talking about American carnage and the rhetoric of Trump's inaugural address was extremely violent. So I will be looking to to see what Biden says and, and the tone that it sets for the weeks, months, years to come. How about you, Sarah? I think I will say the inauguration as like a someone who writes about internet culture. It is one of those things where you are just kind of like constantly glued to these sort of, I guess, like alt platforms to see what is going to happen, what is going to be planned, what will actually come to pass. So I, I do have to say the inauguration, I wish there was something going on in my personal life, but like the rest of us, nothing is that I could say instead to be like fun and charming. You know, as Emily says, like, there's the interesting element of like, Biden himself and like how he presents himself to the country to the world that it, it's hard to see how it can be remarkable. And I, I'm interested to see what that looks like. I'm also interested to see what that looks like from a pandemic perspective. It'll just be obviously like, you know, unlike any other inauguration there's ever been. But for me, it is looking at what is going to happen around it. What are the protests? I mean, and again, I think Emily, you retweeted someone who pointed this out that like, you can't really call it a protest if it's armed. But what are they going to look like from that perspective? And what is the fallout going to be in the days following? So mine isn't very fun or charming either. Uh, but I think <laughs> you're both fun and charming. Don't put yourselves <laughs> down. Thank you very much. Um, I will be looking out for the not at all fun or charming news about the Chinese vaccine, COVID vaccine, Sinovac, is going to be rolled out in Brazil next week. There are some questions about its efficacy. It's relevant for two reasons. Firstly, because an interesting theme to watch over the next weeks and months will be the so-called vaccine nationalism and vaccine diplomacy, the way in which the battle to secure reliable vaccine supplies plays out in international affairs, particularly in the way that China is punting its vaccines around countries that have not got access to the established vaccines currently being administered in the West in a bid, one assumes, to to build influence in those countries. So that's that's interesting about it. The other reason is that the situation in Brazil's again, very severe. The country's in the grip of essentially a third wave with hospitals collapsing, particularly in its largest state, Amazonas. There's a new variant there. So I think significant for both of those reasons. And I'll be looking out for that as well as, of course, the events in Washington. So with that, I have a couple of quick housekeeping notices. The first is that as listeners of last week's episode will remember, Emily and I talked about our predictions for the year ahead. Our articles on that subject are both now up. You can find them on the New Statesman website, newstatesman.com, and I will add them to the episode page for last week's episode, which, along with all the other episodes, you can find at newstatesman.com slash world-review-podcast. The second is that those listeners who also subscribe to our World Review newsletter will from next week be receiving two weekly issues. We are introducing a new Monday issue of the newsletter, which will be mostly anchored by our colleague Ido Vok, previewing the week in world affairs. And that will hopefully complement the Friday edition of the newsletter that Emily and I write. So look out for that. All that remains is to say a big thank you very much to Sarah and remind listeners that you can find, you'll be able to find her uh, piece on the role of the big tech social media giants in the spread of extremism on the episode page for this. And Sarah also writes a newsletter on cultural affairs, which you can find on the New States website. So Sarah, thank you ever so much again for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
If you have enjoyed this episode of the World Review, please tell everyone you know, honestly, about it. And also like, review, and subscribe. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening. And until next week. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.